Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is Patrick Batuello, founder and president of Horse Racing Wrongs. Launched in 2013 and based in Albany, New York, Horse Racing Wrongs seeks to end horse racing. The organization's mission is uncompromising and unequivocal. They're not really interested in reforms or other modifications to the industry. They want horse racing to stop. Horse Racing Wrongs is pursuing that objective through an array of measures, including providing blog posts and constantly updated statistics of racehorse injuries and deaths on their website, Testifying in front of legislative bodies, staging protests at racetracks, and erecting anti-racing billboards near tracks. Locally, Horse Racing Wrongs is helping subsidize a billboard that Tampa Bay's Florida Voices for Animals has put up near the racetrack Tampa Bay Downs. Specifically, the billboard, which will be up through March, is located at the corner of Hillsborough Avenue and Racetrack Road. FVA, Florida Voices for Animals, will hold its latest protest, by the way, at Tampa Bay Downs this Saturday, March 12th at 11 a.m. Like any top-tier advocacy organization, Horse Racing Wrongs places a premium on education, aiming to inform horse racing fans, including the contingent who believe thoroughbreds are born to run run about the little known conditions from spending hours in isolation each day to being forced to race before their bodies and bones are fully developed and paralleling these horses and helping account for so many horse injuries and deaths on the racetrack. We'll hear more about horse racing and the efforts of horse racing wrongs when I speak with Patrick Batuello in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A programming note, next week I'll be out of town, so not here for the show, but I'm delighted to report that the fabulous Bev Capshaw will be hosting Talking Animals in my absence that day, March 16th. Bev always does a wonderful job, so I hope you'll join her next Wednesday. I'll return the following week back behind the mic on March 23rd. Meanwhile, later in today's program, I'll speak with Sarah Shook, a non-binary singer-songwriter in the country and country punk vein, who with their band The Disarmers recently released a new album, Night Roamer. Some may recall that Shook and The Disarmers headlined WMNF's Americana Fest in 2019. Last week, Shook posted on their Facebook page what seemed like a declaration of their veganism and also something of a rumination on being vegan, ultimately urging those who've been considering going vegan or vegetarian to give Meatless Mondays a whirl. The post touched off a long, interesting, often colorful thread, and I'll speak with Shook about some of this later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk horse racing with Patrick Batuello with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.com. We're texting 813-433-0885. This is Patrick Batuello on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Duncan. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks so much for joining us this morning on Talking Animals. Of course. Thanks for having me. So I'm often inclined to start these types of conversations exploring the guest's origin story, especially when the guest is as focused and effective an activist as you are. I just It's always interesting, I think, to sort of trace how they got there and have some context for then the conversation that will follow. So let's initially head back pretty far. What role did animals play in your family when you were a kid? You know, we had we had dogs, um, but I never really made a connection with animals or animal suffering until I was an adult. Um, I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. Uh, about tw- that's 20 years ago, actually, this month. 
and uh, that set me on my journey. I became a vegetarian, and within a few months after that, vegan, and I decided I needed an outlet for my advocacy. And eventually, I started writing an animal rights blog for the local paper here in the Albany, New York area, the Times Union, which was the first of its kind in uh, upstate New York. And I was trying to cover all the various animal-related issues. When I began researching horse racing, uh, two things jumped out. One, there was a dearth of information out there. Uh, No one knew how many horses were dying at America Tracks, let alone the circumstances in which they were dying. And second, there was no organization in the country taking this industry on, um, in my opinion, Groups like PETA and the HSUS were giving racehorses merely a cursory consideration. So that's how this this happened. That was back in 2013. It was just uh, I saw this void in the animal rights community. I do not have a horse background. I didn't know much about horse racing beyond being a sports fan growing up and following uh, you know the Triple Crown races. So I had to learn about both equines and the racing industry as I went, and uh, that's. That's how we started. So was it was it kind of, uh, in a sense, when you were working on this blog and kind of found that there really wasn't much uh, known and, and it certainly wasn't a, a group strictly or exclusively devoted to the horse racing issue, was it sort of... This is a test of the emergency alert system. And uh, they've been very generous sharing their um, their successes and their failures and, and all the, the world of experience that they've had. Um, hyper-focused on one specific industry. And so that's exactly, that's exactly what we're trying to do here is um, we're filling uh, a role that, that was desperately needed within animal rights. I mean, you know, we knew, um, you know, about animals and entertainment and other, other areas like Ringling Brothers and SeaWorld. And, of course, there were, uh, you know, groups focused on uh, animal testing and fur and, of course, food. Uh, but no one was really taking the horse racing industry on. So that's, that's what we do. Well, it's interesting. I was figured later on in the conversation I would bring up the greyhound situation just because, as you've noted, speaking from Florida where not too long ago, voters did support an amendment outlawing dog racing, which was no small task and one we discussed extensively on the show. In fact, for a few years' time, we had what, what we called... Um, a greyhound uh, correspondent, uh, an expert mm-hmm. for many years, and uh, helped kind of keep us on track with the legislation and the ins and outs. And um, so I guess I, I would wonder, uh, especially since you obviously have been conferring with those folks, what, what are some facets of that campaign that you think you could emulate or, or maybe already are emulating to help kind of guide your efforts? Well, we're, you know, we're driven by, you know, two main uh goals, and that is education and exposure, and exactly what Grade 2K did with Greyhound Racing. We need to educate the public, and we need to expose the industry for what it is. And, you know, we can start with dog racing because, you know, I would defy anyone to draw a rational distinction between the two forms of animal racing in regard to how the animals are treated. Certainly, the differences um, are about money and, and supposed tradition. Um, but as far as animal welfare, there is not a lick of difference between the two forms. And so that is our major hurdle where um, dog racing was never seen as a sport. In fact, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners you know, could name one you know, racing greyhound, <laughs> and yet in horse yeah. racing we have you know you know big names. In fact, um, you know ESPN named Secretariat the 35th greatest athlete of the 20th century. Um, so you know we have that major hurdle to clear in in in, in reconditioning 
you know, the, the average American to stop looking at this as a sport and, you know, indeed looking at it like the, we do now about dog racing. Um, dog racing, by the end of this year, will have there'll be two tracks left in the entire country. And even more telling, it is outright prohibited on moral grounds in 41 states. Yeah. And yet, horse racing is able to, you know, skirt by under the banner of sport. And so we need to continue to push that. And, you know, interestingly, you know, we can get into all the different facets, but, um, you know, one thing that Carrie and Christine shared with us in advance of that, that historic vote in 2018 in Florida, they were doing a lot of polling. And they were surprised to learn that um, as opposed to the, the killing being the number one issue, you know, in the minds of the voters, it was actually the confinement of these dogs, you know, keeping them in cages for 23 hours a day. We have the exact same issue in horse racing. This is the way these horses are kept in tiny 12 by 12 stalls for over 23 hours a day. It is the worst part of this industry for me is that, that intensive unremitting confinement and that social isolation. These are naturally social herd animals. Um, but again, the difference is most of us have had, you know, dogs in our lives at some point and they live in our homes. And so to see a dog, you know, penned up like that in a cage is, you know, is, is very disturbing. Um, horses have always been kept in stalls, barns, and it's, it's, it's a more difficult connection for us to, to try to promote you know, with, with the, uh, the masses. Um, but, you know, just so your listeners know, they are suffering just the same as the, as the dogs that suffered in those cages. Um, in fact, at a New York State Senate hearing in 2019, a prominent equine veterinarian here in upstate New York said that keeping a horse, you know, penned up like that for 23 hours a day in a 12 by 12 stall is akin to keeping a child locked in a four by four closet for over 23 hours a day. Wow. They have uh, yeah. the same, they exhibit the same stereotypies that we used to see with the ringed elephants, you know, the, the bobbing, the weaving, the swinging, mm -hmm. and, you know, for horses, the kicking and the digging, even self mutilation. These are clear, uh, unequivocal signs of, of mental and emotional suffering, you know, so that, you know, that's a good place to start. You know, we can talk about the killing, but, you know, it's that confinement and isolation. And that is, that is, in fact, the way the average racehorse is kept yeah. day in and day out, you know, for, for years. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will find that something of, of a revelation. I mean, you know, obviously injuries and of course deaths are high profile, make the headlines, make the news uh, kind of hard to miss those. But I think even people that would f consider themselves fairly conversant with horse racing don't know or just haven't had reason maybe to to uh, contemplate uh, the confinement issue. And and then, like you say, then there's also initially maybe uh, like a, a mental gap you have to make between like, well, if they're in stables ordinarily, what does the confinement thing really mean? But you know, right. as, as you've already alluded to, it's 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 a whole different uh, deal than what people are probably picturing as far as uh, a horse having a nice stable and hanging out and having a great great life. But before the next race, exactly. And and you know, it's one thing for me to talk about it. You know, they can try to dismiss me as an animal rights activist. You know, I'm just uh, you know overly sentimental, um, anthropomorphic. Um, but we have you know two experts on our advisory board. One was that aforementioned equine vet here in New York, and another is a retired Tufts professor whose expertise is in animal behavior. And he talks about this confinement in the context of human beings kept in solitary confinement and the suffering that they uh, are forced to endure. 
Um, so again, it's it's uh, much more difficult for the industry to dismiss experts, um, and that's why you know we are always trying to you know um, further expand you know our our, our messaging and our, our credibility in um, by engaging you know experts, true experts in the field. Yeah, no, it's, I assume the, the latter one you're referring to is Dr. Dodman, Dr. Nicholas Dodman. Exactly. Yeah. No, amazing. Uh, in fact, the, the first conversation I had with him, Duncan, you know, when I was calling to invite him on to our board, the very first thing he talked about uh, regarding horse racing was the confinement. And that, to me, was, was so validating because, you know, as an animal rights person, to see any animal kept locked up, kept caged, you know, penned, you know, that is the worst of it. It's suffering. You know, uh, a, a kill is a kill, uh, and that's horrific, but it's that unremitting suffering and and that's exactly what he what he talked about so uh, again it's it's easy for them to try to dismiss me but they can't so easily do it with experts right well that's the thing and sometimes even if there's a, a an expert with their phd or or a vet or a medical degree they can still try to marginalize them based on paper they wrote one time or some other thing but when it comes to somebody like dr dodman who's you know widely respected is a professor has written a number of books i mean good luck trying to discredit that guy exactly Exactly. So uh, let me let folks know you might just be tuning in. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Patrick Batuello, founder and president of Horse Racing Wrongs, an organization that seeks to end horse racing. And uh, we're talking about some of their uh, efforts to uh, organize folks about horse racing and some of the things that people, uh, beyond the obvious and just uh, grim things that people do know about in terms of injuries and deaths on the racetrack, confinement and other things that go with horse racing that a lot of people probably don't know among the reasons that horse racing they're, they're working to, to end. They're not really looking for uh, reforms or, hey, let's make this a little bit better or let's improve some conditions. They're looking to end it. So if you have any questions or comments for Patrick, you can call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So there's a few things you said along the way that I just want to maybe go back on, circle back on a little bit, Patrick. One thing is when you mentioned that um, you were a sports fan and you followed the Triple Crown, did I read or stumble into, or maybe I got wrong, that there was some family or other connection early on, long before obviously you started the blog with horse racing. I mean, like, uh, no, that's no, there was no no connection at all with horse. I racing. mean, I mean, just just I, only as someone who went to the races or not otherwise in a more formal way. No, but. in fact, you know, my only experience, you know, we're in Saratoga Country here, which is one of the premier tracks in the nation, and yeah. you know, I went to the track a handful of times because in the capital region in upstate New York, thing to do in the summertime. Sure. Um, just again, unthinking, just something, something to do. It's a yeah. social um, venue as much as it is a horse racing venue. So, and again, being a huge sports fan in the '70s and '80s, I, I watched, you know, Seattle Slough and Affirm go for the Triple Crown. I was aware of Secretariat, and because that's how it's sold to us. Yeah, the sport. And these are athletes. They talk about these equine athletes all the time. You know, but what we are asking it horse racing wrongs for people to reassess, to look at it through a fresh lens. And we're confident that if they, they approach it like that, rationally and objectively, that they will see that this is no different than dog racing. Again, it's, it's simple animal exploitation, animal cruelty, and animal killing. And, and that's what people, you know, what we, we are asking the public to do. Again, it's just a, it's a, it's a matter of reassessment, um, like, you know, the experience that we, we go through as, as animal rights activists, you know, yeah. looking, looking at it through a fresh lens. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, I think there are well, we were drawing initially a parallel between dog racing and horse racing. I mean, I just think 
in so many ways, including culturally, and just as you said, people that are just sports fans. And again, a lot of people, of course, do consider horse racing a sport, and that's a whole other conversation that we may or may not have as well as we, if we have time to have all the all the horse racing conversations we should probably try to squeeze in today. It just feels like, you know, you're up against a whole different level of people's connection and how they do connect to horse racing as compared with how people get into and, and started betting on or otherwise being interested in, in, in dog racing. But anyways, we can circle back right. to that. We've got some some uh, callers here and some emailers. In fact, uh, let's, let's put one of those uh, callers on into the show here. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with uh, David Batuello. I mean, Patrick hey. Batuello, sorry. Hello, this is Larry. Hi, Larry. Hey, I'm just Get ready to say, uh, why end it with just horse racing? I mean, a lot of individuals own horses, and they keep them in their stalls all day long. I see it all the time. The horses, they crib, they bite the wood, they're erratic. It's like keeping a dog in a, a dog box all day long. I mean, why just stop at racing? If, if you can't have a pasture, let your horse run, don't own a horse because he's basically just trapped. Okay, thank thank you. Uh, yeah, that's, Patrick, any yeah, that's comment a great there? Question. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Look, we are, we are focused on one specific industry, horse racing, but as an organization, we are, again, the domestication and exploitation of any animal. So, you know, there are other, you know, so-called disciplines, equine disciplines, you know, uh, eventing and showing. We are against all exploitation of not just horses, but animals. So, you know, that's, that would be terrific to get rid of all of it. But for, you know, for us, our focus currently is on is ending this, this particular uh, form of exploitation. And that's a pretty ambitious thing with a big scope to it by itself, much less trying to then take on sort of ancillary uh, issues right. as well. So, uh, this, so this industry is, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's been around for over a century. It's, um, you know, it's, it's firmly entrenched, you know, but we are making progress and, you know, it could take a couple minutes to talk about some of that progress. You know, tr- the industry is contracting as we speak since the year 2000, 40 tracks have closed across America and only two new ones have opened and, th- and they only because they are being subsidized, heavily subsidized by taxpayers, which, by the way, uh, also applies to the two tracks in Florida, Gulfstream and Tampa Bay Downs. Um, without that subsidization, it is no exaggeration to say that um, more than half of the industry across the country would crumple virtually overnight. Um, you know, Tampa Bay Downs for sure would close without the subsidies. Gulfstream, maybe not. Um, but the point is that this industry is heavily subsidized. Here in New York, about $230 million a year in corporate welfare going to prop up this archaic, you know, dying industry. And all coming, by the way, at the expense of school children, education, which is where all state-sanctioned gambling is supposed to go. So, um, you know, in New- in Florida, they just uh, decoupled, as they call it, the um, uh, the harness track Pompano, which will be closing this spring, so the track will, you know, the, the I'm sorry, the casino itself will continue and will continue to generate income for the state, but they are no longer under the requirement to hold uh, harness racing, and that's what we're looking for in other states um, here in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio. So that's that's a part of the um, the issue that a lot of people are unaware of that this industry can no longer compete. As a rule, there are you know exceptions. There's you know certainly a handful of tracks that are self-sufficient, but as a rule, you know, 70 to 75 percent of the industry is being subsidized and it can't compete with lotteries, casinos, and now all sports betting, which is, you know, gambling on real sports involving autonomous human beings. And so certainly the, the long-term trend is bad for horse racing. Um, and we're just, you know, it's, it's our role to, you know, to kind of push it quicker to its demise. 
So, Patrick, one of the reasons I accidentally called you, David, a second ago, is one of our emailers that uh, raised a question that I figured we'd get into at some point, but I guess this is as good a time as any. So this uh, emailer is saying, could your guest speak about the numerous horse deaths at Santa Anita Park in California? I'm perplexed about why the track had so many deaths. I saw a horse get killed on the track at Tampa Bay Downs a few years ago, and it was very traumatic and unforgettable. That's a great question. Look, at Santa Anita, when it happened, this was three years ago now, uh, The initially the media reports were that this was an anomaly. This was a spike or a speed, as they were calling it. So as you can imagine, you know, because we have um, unique data, before we came on the scene in 2013, no one knew how many horses were dying. So we do this through FOIA requests to state racing commissions throughout the country. So we have this unique data. I was fielding a lot of questions back then. So what's going on in Santa Anita, just like your your uh, emailer? Um, the fact is that that was business as usual. The fact is Santa Anita at that point had averaged 50 deaths annually going back to 2007. So at the time, there were about 30 deaths. It was only The only difference was it was finally being covered nationally for whatever reason. It's, you know, it's a, it's a high-profile track, and there was an article in the L.A. Times that kind of uh, spurred things. But this is business as usual, not just in Santa Anita, but across the country. So, you know, getting to Florida specifically, over the past five full calendar years, Tampa Bay Downs, 107 dead horses, Gulfstream, 256, all Florida tracks combined, and that would include uh, Pompano, 465 over the past five years. So Tampa Bay Downs, running only six months out of the year, averages 20 kills per season. That's, that's one track. And it should be noted that um, I'm not capturing all of the deaths, clearly. You know, there are, for various reasons, I don't have access to private training facilities most prominently, um, and there are just as many of those, if not more, than there are commercial racetracks across the country. But then there's slipshod reporting to and from racing commissions, and Florida is notorious for that. You know, but again, confirmed deaths. I have 107 at Tampa Bay Downs over the past five years. This is nothing unusual. And just so your listeners know, Duncan, it's the way they're dying. You know, most people think of a horse just, you know, maybe a, a you know broken leg and they have to give it a quick shot and that's the end of it. The end of it. I get detailed, you know, through these FOIA requests. And, um, you know, if I could encourage, you know, people listening to this show now to go to one section of our website, horseracingwrongs.org, it would be how they die. Mm. You know, and that's a sampling of some of the, the details. Just for instance, just today I uh, posted about California deaths from last year. Again, California is one of those states that gives me full necropsy reports, uh, unlike Florida, which is usually just a one-page single report. So I get a lot of detail in California. And just today I, I reported on just a couple of these that I wanted to read to you. Luca's ride, who was killed at Los Alamitos on October 17th, it said fell during race, died on impact, fleet displaced cranial neck fracture with compression of spinal cord and tearing and hemorrhaging of surrounding tissues. And then um, later on, there was Conchita dying at uh, Los Alamitos on November 28th, fell during race, unable to rise, catastrophic lumbar fracture with multiple variable-shaped fragments within spinal canal, accompanied by massive hemorrhage and complete transaction of the spinal cord, which you just time and again. It's yeah. not just, you know, fractured limbs. They break their necks. They sever their spines. They die of, uh, you know, pulmonary hemorrhage, which is bleeding out from the lungs. They die of what are called uh, cardiovascular collapses or sudden cardiac events. You know, Medina Spirit, um, some of your listeners, I'm sure, know, you know, had that uh, death. Um, and people were wondering, you know, how is a three-year-old horse just killing over and dying? That same day that Medina, you know, was disclosed that Medina had died, I posted about 100, well, there's 50 at the time, but it's well over 100 from 2020. 
21 uh, who died uh, under similar circumstances. Again, these are pubescent horses. A horse is not fully mature until six. These are two, three, four-year-old horses just dying, just collapsing and dying. Um, so I see it time and again. They die back in their stalls from things like colic and laminitis. And of course, they die at the slaughterhouse. That's something we, you know, I like to get into real quickly. Um, and this is an issue, this is part of the issue that does not apply to dog race. Um, so there have been two independent studies done. One, by the way, was by uh, Temple Grandin, which I saw was one of your, your past guests. And those, these two studies indicate that the majority of spent or simply no longer wanted racehorses end up in equine hell at the end of their so-called careers, the slaughterhouse. Yeah. Um, we're talking anywhere between 10, 15,000 annually. So taken all together, on-track deaths, stall deaths, and the exsanguinations, you know, bleeding out of these horses, the butchering of these horses at the slaughterhouse, it is no exaggeration to say that the American horse racing industry is engaged in wholesale carnage, not hyperbole, carnage. So, you know, we have all these different components, you know, the killing, the, 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 the cruelty of confinement and isolation, and then there, are, of course, are the other, the other things that happen to horses, you know, the drugging and the doping, which a lot of people are aware of, and which I personally feel it gets uh, too much attention in the media, and of course, whipping, you know, these animals are whipped. I mean, think about this. If you were, if you observed someone whipping his horse, or I'm sorry, his dog on a walk in the park, you would call the police and that person would be arrested for probably felony animal cruelty. But at the racetrack, it goes on as business as usual. It's just part of the tradition. Yeah. And make no mistake, the whipping hurts. You know, I've got studies again on the website, you know, attesting to that. So, you know, all these different uh, different components of the issue. It's, it should be clear to, again, any reasonable, objective person that we're talking about animal cruelty here of the worst order. And considering all that's happened in the animal entertainment sector in just the past few years, Ringland Brothers closing for good, SeaWorld because of blackfish in decline, rodeo bands in uh, cities as diverse as, as St. Petersburg and Pittsburgh. Um, of course, dog racing, as I mentioned, all but dead in this country. This is the next, the next rung on the ladder here. We have, you know, horse racing has to go. And so that is our message. It's animal cruelty, it's animal killing, and it can't be fixed or reformed. Well, it seems like, again, it's an enormously ambitious thing, and I think it's got other obstacles that some of those, even though those took a long time, the ones you alluded to, and it took a major documentary film in one case to to really hit the exposure on a, on a meaningful level. So I want to get some other comments in here, because I figured we would get a comment like this. This one says, hello, just turn this on. I go to Tampa Bay Downs once in a while, mainly because the horses look so beautiful, have been to other places where they did not look nearly as good. You say the horses are penned up 23 hours a day. I've driven through Ocala many times, always see horses outdoors looking very happy and content. How does this work with what you're saying? Well, that's before they get to the track, typically. I mean, this is, the, you know, that's the, the breeding process. And, um, but once they, once they are in the system, so to speak, and that comes as early as 18 months, and again, these are babies at 18 months, on the maturation chart, that's the rough equivalent of a kindergartner. So once they're in the system, as a rule, this is the way these horses are kept. They're stalled 23 hours a day, um, and this goes on for years. So, you know, and again, as far as, you know, going to Tampa, you know, every once in a while because you love to see the horses run, it's really important that people connect dots. You know, whether they bet or not, you know, any support in any way, you know, paying admission, obviously placing a $2 bet, going to a racino, which is this, this combination casino racetrack, which, you know, goes to, you know, support, supports the horse racing industry. Um, there are consequences to these actions. So, 
you know, even if a horse does not break down on that particular day that you went to Tampa Bay Downs, if a horse breaks down anywhere at any place there, you know, in the country on that day, you, there, you know, there is um, a certain complicity um, because this is a single entity horse racing. It's, these are not individual tracks. It's, it's one, it's one industry and, uh, you know, support, a support at one track is a support for all tracks. So I would just encourage people to think about that and, and to, to know that, you know, look, it's simple, you know, supply and demand. You know, if we if we eliminate the demand, then they can no longer, you know, conduct these races and horses will no longer die in, in horrific ways and no longer suffer, you know, back in their stalls and end up being butchered at the end of their so-called careers. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of connecting the dots and all of our actions have uh, consequences. Indeed. So another emailer says, it is tragic how many salvageable horses are put down for financial reasons keeps the fight to close this industry which is mainly run by wealthy people down so let's um take one of our calls. I, I would just take a uh, you know somewhat of an issue with that it, it's a it's a common a misconception that these these horses are salvageable you know some may be but as a rule um, a horse who suffers a fracture um, the humane course is to euthanize yeah. horses um, because of their anatomy and their physiology are uh, do not make good candidates for surgery recovery. Um, you remember what happened with Barbaro back in 2006 because you know he was such a, a valuable commodity and you know in the, in the stud farm you know post career um, they tried everything to save him multiple surgeries and in, in the end it failed and he developed laminitis which was an is an excruciating inflammation in in the feet you know for these horses because they're not they you know they're made to be able to support their weight on all four limbs and when they're trying to recover from a surgery it, that it's a it's nearly impossible so that's a common misconception that it's just a you know an economic decision it, it does happen that way that um you know they don't want to put the money into surgery and but for the most part you know that is the right thing to do at that point is to yeah euthanize. yeah no I, I could be wrong but i think because this email came in a few minutes ago i think this email that was writing probably more geared for your comments about the slaughterhouse and horses that end up mm -hmm. there but i could be wrong okay. let me see if i still have this caller here that i was going to try to put on the air hi you're on talking animals with patrick batuelo yes greetings duncan thanks for taking my call sure i want to thank i want to thank duncan I want to thank you for doing what he's doing. I've always hated horse racing. I've uh, rescued two horses from horse racing. We call it rescuing. Took them in instead of going to, to a slaughterhouse. Um, and I appreciate it. There were so many uh, points I wanted to make, but he made them all, especially the fact that one of the things we're doing when we're racing horses is they're way too young to be racing. They're not fully developed until they're six years old. And that's one of the reasons they suffer so many injuries. And it's just a cruel, cruel way of doing it. And I want to tell you something else that I learned, oh, back, uh, made me stop eating at McDonald's. When the horse beef is processed and it's ground, it's now beef. Did you know that? That's the way our USDA looks at horse beef. Once they grind it up, it's, it's beef. So it's in all kinds of things. Uh, I learned that because the Gunnels outbid Alpo for the largest single sale of horse beef at the time, I think it was in 1974, and um, I called up thinking, well, why is McDonald's buying horse meat? And that's when I found out that the USDA uh, considered ground horse meat as beef. Wow. Any comments on that, Patrick? I, I don't know much about, yeah, I don't know much about, you know, that specifically. First off, thank you, you know, for being against horse racing. Um, as far as thank the you for horse slaughter, work. that is a difficult, horse, horse slaughter is a difficult issue because there is a demand for horse meat in Europe and Asia. So we do not currently slaughter on American 
soil. The last uh, equine slaughterhouse was closed in 2007. By the way, it has not been prohibited by law. It's just been defunded. So it could, it could you know, in theory, um, restart here in the state. But we ship these horses, you know, hundreds if not thousands of miles in crammed, cramped trailers to Canada and Mexico, you know, where, you know, their, their final end is nothing short of hell. Um, you know, so, you know, but just getting back to the, you know, the original point, there's a demand for it. And, and as long as there's a demand, they're going to find a supply. So, you know, we have to, you know, work on the, the other end of the equation, you know, in Europe and Asia to try to convince people to stop demanding horse meat. But, um, you know, that's, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother issue. Okay. Thank you, caller, for your question. Thanks for uh, <clears throat> your response, Patrick. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Patrick Batuello, founder and president of Horse Racing Wrongs, an organization whose mission is to end horse racing. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So, Patrick, we got an email that's unfortunately far too long for me to read, but the gist of it is that this was someone that was involved with trying to shut down a, a Greyhound track, I guess, the, the, in Tucson, Tucson Greyhound Park, and it talks about grade 2K, et cetera. But ultimately, the question is something you alluded to kind of in passing when when, um, when you were talking about the harness track that uh, was shut down, which is the, the decoupling of gambling and racing. Because for a long time, what, what Greyhound uh, people trying to shut down Greyhound racing were up against is that they, they, there was this whole connection between gambling and a certain number of races that for a track to provide gambling opportunities had to run a certain number of races. So ultimately, this man's question is, are there any similar laws that require racing in order to conduct gambling in, in the horse racing realm? Yeah, absolutely. That goes back to that subsidization that, like I said, 70 to 75 percent of the industry nationwide is being subsidized. Um, we, we are making progress on that. It, this is something we have been writing about on Horse Racing Wrongs, you know, for, you know, since the beginning. Um, and it's, it's, it's long overdue that, you know, we start getting into this state by state because, you know, we can have all the success in the world converting hearts and minds. And, and in fact, I would argue that if we were to, you know, get a referendum vote, you know, in America today, up or down on horse racing, that we would win. Um, but as long as that these subsidies, you know, are on the books, horse racing will continue along merrily. There would not be a harness track in existence today in the whole country without subsidization corporate welfare. So, you know, to that end, we are part of a coalition here in New York, New York State, um, multifaceted. You know, there are groups that are, you know, uh, focused on education, human services, and of course, animal um, uh, advocacy groups like ourselves. And we have introduced bills um, just in the past month, try to strip those subsidies here in New York, which if successful or when successful, I should say, uh, nine of the 11 racetracks in New York would shutter again, virtually overnight. Um, and again, in Florida, same same idea uh, where you could make an argument that Gulfstream is would be successful uh, on its own without subsidies. Tampa Bay Downs, I'm confident, would close without that. So you know it's a state by state thing because the laws vary you know uh, from state to state. So we need to really dig in. Pennsylvania, we're part of a group there that's been fighting the subsidies. And Governor Wolf, I don't know if your listeners are aware, um, has the first major politician to go on the record as saying these subsidies have to end. Um, he's met resistance in the legislature in Pennsylvania, but in his last two, maybe the three budgets now, annual budgets, he has called for these um, this $200 million plus in subsidies going to the horse racing industry in Pennsylvania um, 
to be diverted to college scholarships. It's a no-brainer. Um, so even if you were to remove the animal cruelty, animal killing components out of this, this is wrong. It's, it's wrong that, uh, again, school children are being cheated out of, you know, tens of millions of dollars, um, you know, annually. Well, more than that, when you look at it uh, uh, nationwide. So, Patrick, you've mentioned a few times, and, and actually one of our emailers did as well, uh, Tampa Bay Downs. So you've helped Florida Voices for Animals, a, a Tampa-based uh, group that we talk about periodically here on the show, pay for the billboard that just went up near Tampa Bay Downs and will stay up through March. Um, how often do you forge this kind of partnership with, with other organizations, and, and how does it work when you do? Um, typically, you know, they, they reach out to us. We, we were part of um, uh, a partnership in California, you know, prior to this, uh, and we think it's terrific. Again, you know, these, these protests that happen across the country, um, by the way, we, we have been at 20-plus tracks since our founding, you know, protests. Um, we, you know, send out material, signs, posters, leaflets, um, bumper stickers, etc., um, for free to any local, you know, animal advocacy groups that want to stage a protest at their at their track. Um, so it's just it's it's a matter of engaging the animal rights community, and we are having a lot of success uh, w- with that. Um, these billboards are something that we find are very effective. Uh, in fact, we've done uh, quite a few mobile billboards. Uh, last year, we were at all three Triple Crown races, which is, you know, it, it, this entails two mobile billboards driving around the track or the track area for eight hours um, with, you know, messaging like horse racing is animal cruelty and um, horse racing kills horses. We were also at the Travers in Saratoga. We were at the Breeders' Cup in Del Mar. We plan on doing that again this year with all the major races. And, um, again, the one in Tampa is a static uh, billboard, um, again, very effective. So, you know, it, it's it's obviously one of those issues that has flown under the radar for far too long. And yeah. because of us, because of, you know, us bringing awareness to this issue, um, we, are, we are seeing more engagement with, within the animal rights community. Yeah. Florida Voices for Animals is a perfect example. And I should quickly add, speaking of protests and Florida Voices for Animals, that Florida Voices for Animals is holding a protest this Saturday, May 12th, at Tampa Bay Downs at uh, get, in, get Underway at 11 a.m. So if you'd like to get involved or check that out, that's happening this Saturday. So we're just about nearing the end of our time, um, Patrick, I'm afraid. It sounds like you guys are working uh, tirelessly and doing everything you can. Is it too glib to say, hey, maybe horse racing needs its blackfish? Or, I mean, is there something that you, you can see uh, that's going to sort of kick this up a notch or two? in terms of the awareness, because I just think so many of the things we talked about, I, like I say, I think when there's a major suspension or, God forbid, death or injury, that gets attention, that gets media attention. But so many of the things that even that you just brought up in this conversation, I just think certainly the sheer number and quantity of things uh, just get sort of underreported or people just don't have any awareness. Are there some things that you think are going yeah, to ratchet this up? We have just maybe about a minute or so left. No, for sure. We are abs- you know, actually working on a major documentary. As okay. So we're looking for our blackfish moment. Yeah. And again, the focus needs to be on um, you know, the inherent problems of horse racing. You know, Again, drugs gets outsized focus, um, as far as I'm concerned, in the media. We need people to, to know that this cannot be fixed. It is animal cruelty. Uh, almost six horses die every day on American tracks. Six. Yeah. It's over 2,000 a year. So that's the messaging. People need to know that. And, and, and you know, we're confident that, um, 
you know, we're just we're continuing to push the envelope. The Washington Post and the Philadelphia Inquirer editorial boards have called for horse racing to end. That's a sea change from where we began. We yeah. were admonished, you know, to to work with the industry to try to fix it and, and considered animal rights extremists when uh, when we began eight years ago or nine years ago. Now that messaging is starting to come through. So yeah, yeah, we are we are working very hard on you know reaching reaching the masses. That's great. Well, I appreciate all your work. I'm sure many uh, folks listening do. This has been Patrick Patuello from Horse Racing Wrongs. The web- website is horseracingwrongs.org and again it's super informative and it's constantly updated with statistics grim statistics sometimes but i think that's what we need and just other information that's super valuable so if you care about horses and horse racing this is a the place to go so patrick thank you again for joining us today on talking animals thank you so much for having me duncan thank you In a moment, I'll speak with singer-songwriter Sarah Shook with her band, The Disarmers, recently released a new album, Night Roamer. Shook wrote a social media post last week indicating they were vegan and had been for eight years, ruminating about how their approach to veganism had changed over the years. The ensuing thread featured an array of comments on the post and the thread intriguing and invited Sarah on the show today to discuss them. That'll happen in just a moment. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece directly relevant to my conversation with Patrick Batuelo about horse racing. This is is Nate Fridson with a piece actually called Horse Racing in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. So, like, I worry about some of our older sports. Like, how are they going to stay relevant in the next century? You know, like, like horse racing. How is horse racing going to stay relevant? I think the only way is if technology gets so good that eventually we can talk to the horses after the race and do a post-game interview. Because I would watch horse racing if that was part of it. Just after the race, some sideline reporter just like, we're standing here with Haley's Comet. HCOM, great race. Talk to us about your preparation. And the horse is just like... <sighs> First, I just want to give the glory to God. <laughs> Through him, all things are possible, except having thumbs and driving a car. <laughs> you know, it's all about preparation. I, uh, I slept standing up last night. <laughs> Ate a bag of oats, just, you know. It put me in a position to be successful. That's what Haley's Comet does. Haley's Comet comes to race... Haley's Comet comes to execute. Haley's Comet comes to refer to himself the third person. That's just, that's just Haley's Comet being Haley's Comet. You can't stop Haley's Comet from doing Haley's Comet things. And Porter's like, uh, fascinating. Talk to us about turn three. That's where you really took control of the race. Yeah, well, there was like a small man on my back just, uh, just hitting me with, with like a rod or a whip. Do you know the thing I'm talking about? It's like a stick and then like a little leather flap. Like, I don't know what the word is for it because I'm a horse. I don't really have a big vocabulary. It's pretty much carrot and all those words I just said, but... I gotta be honest, I just want to be away from that guy. Like, that guy hit me a lot. Did you see that? Is there a ref? Is he gonna call anything out there? That dude was all over me. And yet, as fast as I ran, there he was on my back. I don't really get how that works. Again, I'm a horse. I don't have the capacity for reason. Was that a wizard? What was that? I'm, I'm glad it's over. That was Nate Fridson in today's Comedy Corner of the part of a piece called Horse Racing, taken from his album Best Guy So Far. Now it's time to speak with Sarah Shook, who has a new album out, Night Roamer, and a tour starting Friday. But we're here today chiefly to discuss the social media posts they wrote last week about being vegan. Here's Sarah Shook on Talking Animals on WNO. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So, yeah, so again, new album, Night Roamer, which I've really been enjoying, and you're about to embark on what looks like a gigantic tour. But mainly I invited you today to talk a little bit about the post that you wrote last Thursday. Sort of a, I guess what looked to me a little bit like a sort of a declaration of being vegan and some contemplation about what that eight-year journey has involved and how it's kind of evolved. What prompted that post? In other words, why that post that day? Um, I'm not totally sure what date exactly my anniversary is. So I typically make a post sometime between mid-February and mid-March, because um, I know that that's sort of the range of when I went vegan. I see. Um, so, yeah, I try to make a post every year um, and just, you know, be informative and, and uh, educational for folks. Have the past posts been sort of similar to the one that you wrote on Thursday? You know, uh, social media is pretty wild. And, um, you know, I can post something on Instagram and everybody's cool and supportive and, like, on board. And then you post the same thing on Facebook and people are, like, tearing each other's shreds. Um, I, I think that Facebook really just brings out the worst in people sometimes. Well, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it did touch off quite a long thread and quite an array of comments, notably including one, I guess, Asia. I'm not sure if that's how the person's name is pronounced, but who wrote, like, you until this s word nothing about a plant-based diet is better for the environment why vegans have to virtue signal their fad diet is beyond me which was pretty wild to which you replied eight years of sticking anything doesn't seem like a fad i'm not telling anyone what to do i'm sharing my personal experience i don't care if you like me or don't like me you do you bud so you're it was more than sort of a fair exchanger but that commenter certainly triggered a bunch of responses so i mean what i guess you like you just kind of said maybe that's partly the difference between Instagram and Facebook, but were you kind of surprised by some of the vehemence of, of the responses? Or Absolutely not. Um, if, if you have made posts like this in the past, um, or even if you've just sort of poked around in any online forum about veganism or animal rights, you know that people are very, very touchy sometimes about um, a, a whole, like everything that that implies. Um, yeah. People can be very defensive about eating meat. They can be defensive about um, leather production, all, all manner of things. Um, and a lot of that is just a result of how we're raised, what we're um, socialized into, what we think is normal. Um, and from a psychological point of view, like I, I understand why people get as defensive as they do. Um, and, and something that I think would really benefit a lot of vegans is to remember that most of us didn't start out not eating animals. Oh, like most of us started out like everybody else. Um, and I, I just think that having a little bit more grace and trying to be a little bit more understanding um, instead of reactionary, it would I think it would really help us um, in the long run. Yeah, what's so interesting, though, I thought, Sarah, though, is, is that your post reflected those very qualities. I mean, you're just saying, look, this is what I did. And then part of it was like, you know, I've kind of done some trial and error. I've tried to have to figure some things out. I've changed some stuff. I've learned some stuff along the way. And um, some other points kind of like that. And then just saying, hey, if you've been thinking about going vegan or vegetarianism, maybe try Meatless Monday. I mean, super friendly and innocuous and just sort of giving your observations. So the fact that I know what you say about how 
how often people do kind of just jump at something like that. But there wasn't, there wasn't, there weren't, thems weren't fighting words that you put there. I mean, it was like just kind of a, a pretty innocuous observations instead of your own experiences. Yeah, um, yeah, and I I feel like from past experience, um, you know, again, most people are supportive even if they're not on the same page necessarily. But there are a lot of people who it's a very triggering subject for them, um, especially for people who have been farmers or ranchers for their whole lives. Um, who like that? That's their family. That's their legacy. Yeah. Um, and and by the same token, it's really encouraging to hear about farmers and ranchers that like just have this moment where they're like, hey, um, this is not what I want to do. And, you know, there are one, there's a, I think it's in Texas, there's a ranch where uh, the owner just turned it into a, a animal sanctuary. sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. yeah. Those so, things do happen. People can have changes of heart, and um, that—that's what we need. Right. Well, we're just about out of time, Sarah. But that's—that's that's one of the things that I liked about what you did there is you were just sort of trying to encourage people, foster people gently in a direction if they were otherwise open to it, and then uh, you know, and then people pounced on you. But uh, but anyway, I appreciated the the. The, uh, the post, and I appreciate you joining us today on Talking Animals. Again, this is Sarah Shook of Sh- Sarah Shook and the Disarmers. The new album is Night Roamer. Big, big tour. Just go to their website, and you'll see, like, plenty of oh, dates. Uh, that's quite a that's quite an itinerary you got. But thanks again for joining us today on Talking Animals. Thank you so much, Duncan. All right, take care. All right, it's Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa, and won't be here next Wednesday. Bev Capshaw will. Right now, it's NPR News Headlines, and then it's Scott Elliott. Thanks. <laughs>